0: When film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome back, listeners, for another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me is my Drift Compatible co host, Patrick. Hey, everyone. We aim to do our best as we take you into the breach and discuss Top Gun Robots. No, no, no. no. I mean Pacific Rim. But hey, (laughs) Top Gun Robots works.
1: Or the other good
0: Transformers movie. How about that? Ooh, I like that too. (laughs) Well, this film (laughs) brought brought to us from the mind of visionary director Guillermo del Toro is a ton of fun. And I think that this Patrick is going to be... An awesome conversation so how have you been good man
1: it's been a busy couple of weeks work is picking up I have tried to stay in the know with what's going on in the world of cinema and other movie related things within our Facebook group and uh, but it's just been you know very steady very steady uh, not a lot going on outside of those things besides family stuff and an occasional softball game for me. So, how about you?
0: Do you still have an OPS of 1000?
1: <laughs> As of tonight, I do.
0: Woohoo! That's my a guy few, right there.
1: Yeah, a few walks here and there, but yes.
0: <laughs> Get Patrick on your fantasy softball team. You hear that? <laughs>
1: I can look at a softball like nobody's business. <laughs> just watch it go by
0: until until someone until some lady from one of the college teams decides to pitch to you, and then oh you're gosh. just going to get scared and run away. Get
1: smoked. I'm going to get smoked. Is <laughs> what it's going to be. <laughs>
0: well, you know that's an unintentional lead-in, Patrick, because you know for our what we've been up to section, um, I'm not going to talk about softball. Um, <laughs> it's like really, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually not going to talk about baseball either. But it is a sport. Uh weird, I'm, <laughs> weird. <laughs> hashtag
1: I <didn't>, weird segue. <laughs> listen,
0: I can make a segue where there is none. Um what I wanted to tell you um about what well what we've decided, I guess rather, what we collectively are going to talk about is Friday Night Lights. Now historic history here for this is that this is a series and a movie that I had never seen, um, which is very odd because I've seen almost all of the football movies uh, and I, I really enjoy sports stories. You and I both do. It's something that we've bonded over and that we can connect on because we both are such big sports lovers as well as movie lovers. And so I really felt bad about the fact that I hadn't seen this movie, not to mention that, but it's also set in West Texas, which is one of my absolute favorite film settings. Well, I, I just one day I was like, you know what? It's time. It's time to just put this movie on. And so I watched the film, the Friday Night Lights movie, and I was blown away by what I saw. I was not expecting the style of that film, Patrick, not in any way, shape or form. Was I thinking that that's how it was going to be done? Um, It's so unique in that it doesn't focus on a character. (laughs) It's literally like a movie about a team, and that sounds like some sort of kind of cliche or you know selling point they're like oh you know that's like some high-minded concept you know you can't actually just have a movie where the, the team is the character no folks if you haven't seen Friday Night Lights you can um, there's a coach and there's a star of players and there's injuries and backups that you know have roles to fill but it truly to me is about that team and so I was fascinated fascinated by the movie I loved it had uh, my cousin Billy Bob Thornton in it in a great performance as the coach. And so after seeing it, I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta start the series. Um, and I remember talking to you about this because, you know, I'm notoriously bad at trying to get through TV series. Um, and I was like, I really want to do this. And, and you were fully supportive. You told me that you had seen it. I think you own it and you really, really loved it. You told me that the main differences were that the show did kind of have a main character, if there was one, and that was the coach, mm-hmm. uh, Coach Taylor, uh, for the TV series. But it still kept a lot of that same style of really bouncing around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I fired up that TV series, Patrick, and I am in love. I am fully, <laughs> fully in love so far. And I'm, I'm, you know, ten or eleven episodes into season one at this point it's absolutely as good as any other first season of TV that I've ever watched. Uh, it it is compelling. It's emotionally powerful for me. Um, what I, what I really love about it is the wholesome nature of the show. I I don't, I mean, yeah, we have things like teenagers having sex occasionally. Um, we have drinking, drinking, we have cheating, but these are very, they're very realistic scenarios. Um, some, some shows, when they put these teenagers in these situations, I feel like they really overblow the usage of alcohol and the, the sex and things like that in order to use those as selling points or to kind of try and entice people with that kind of behavior. But I don't feel like Friday night lights does that. Um, It it always has a grounding to it. Um, It always brings things back to family and to good values. Coach Taylor is like a rock in this series. I've, I didn't, know much about Kyle Chandler as the as an actor before I watched this but dude I am all in on Kyle Chandler it, it, this is as good of a role as I've seen like it, as perfect as a casting you know what I mean like we you and I mm-hmm. talked about this during Battlestar quite a bit with uh Edward J Almos mm-hmm. and how like he's a Dama. like you can't separate him from that role because he literally is so perfect like that's who he is to me Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what Kyle Chandler as, as coach Taylor is like, I agree. I think he's just perfect. So man, I am loving it. I am excited because I think you're going to start watching it with me as well. And we're going to probably try and sync up around season two. And you know, this will take us into football season, probably do a full podcast on it eventually because I really do think it's got a lot of stuff, great stuff to talk about, but yeah. So I'm, I'm taking the mic too much. What, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, I've said you loved it, but why do you love it?
1: (laughs) Well, let me go back to the movie. The movie introduced me to these, um, to the, to the, so the TV, the TV show is not an extension of the movie. It's a, it's a complete retelling. It's not about the Permian Panthers. So Friday Night Lights, the, the movie is based on a book of the same name that chronicles the story of the, the actual, you know, West Texas Permian Panthers. My wife will tell you that, um, it's a very accurate depiction of what West Texas life is like. She grew up in Abernathy, a very small town just outside of Lubbock. And, you know, the town was shut down. Friday nights, nobody's open. The Dairy Queen shut down. The local drugstore shut down. Everything shut down on Friday night. And from the movie standpoint, she actually got to march at Ratliff Stadium, you know, where the, where the Permian Panthers play. I, I tell you, when, when we were in Lubbock, I asked her, I said, how long would it take to get to Odessa? She goes, too long. <laughs> we cannot go there it's like four hours and i was like oh man i really wanted to go to rattle stadium because it was it's iconic i mean the, the the odessa uh permian panthers are they're iconic they're very much iconic and so were the um so are the uh the the team that they played in the in the movie uh, i can't remember the actual uh, the school they're from but uh they're the red team that's how i call them now
0: dallas uh Bab- dallas clark dallas, dallas clark. clark
1: yeah so the TV show, I had I had high hopes for that because what's interesting to me is when you take a, a story like Friday Night Lights and you translate it into what I call long-form storytelling, these episodic things, what are you going to do? So Kyle Chandler as Coach Taylor is spot on. I mean, he is great. He's a fantastic coach. The character is really engaging. He is... Um, He is very grounded. Like he has the ability to be composed so he can get so fired up over something and then leave a room thanking a mom for, you know, for, for being part of the whatever, you know? So he's, he's incredibly likable. (laughs) His relationship with Tammy Taylor, his wife is amazing. We talked about last week on our field of dreams episode, the relationship between Annie and, and, and Ray and I think this is the same kind of thing this supportive equally supportive roles that these guys play more so for that Tammy has for him than him for her uh, but that's not bad I'm just saying that that you can tell she's definitely a supportive wife but when you get into a tv show that deals with a lot of people you run the risk of alienating certain characters mm-hmm. and in particular the first season, I won't talk about the rest of this. I want you to experience this, you know, first time and give your own opinion. But I know for the first season, and I've actually started rewatching, so we can get caught up. Yes. I'm on like episode three or four right now. But the characters in this first season, I feel like get a lot of equal screen time. Their their storylines in relationship to each other, um, Lila and Jason Street's relationship lila's relationship with riggins riggins relationship with um i'm, I'm still trying to get Taylor's taylor yeah
0: tyla tyla taylor tyla something like that i can't remember tyra, <laughs> tyra it is tyra <laughs> all
1: these all these different interchanging interconnected relationships get really well established in this first season and you begin to start to falling you begin to start falling in love with the characters you know smash williams and Uh, matt Saracen. watching it again uh, i confess this will be my third time watching it this is a it's a series that you you once it's over you kind of mourn a little bit for it because you've just kind of connected with the characters quite a bit and therefore it makes it more fun to revisit it again i bet um jason cadams is the guy behind it he's the showrunner he's also behind the uh the popular series Parenthood when it was on. And that was part of the reason we got into uh, my wife and I got into Parenthood and uh, he's just great. Jason Katims is an incredible um, creative force. I like seeing his name on things. It gives me, uh, it gives me inspiration It gives me hope, it gives me encouragement because I know it's bound to be a very well thought out, well crafted show. So I'm excited about picking this up with you and, and walking through this, it, it won't get old. That's for sure. Obviously, with my third round of of FNL, but uh, Texas forever, man.
0: Yeah, man. And you know, and Peter Berg, I gotta say, he he was the one in, who did the the movie version. Mm-hmm. And you want to talk about epic, like perfect Peter style. If you know what a Peter Berg film is, then they all kind of have that that same quick cuts about them and the action is unreal. The action filming in the final scene of the, or the final final game, like the championship game, you know where it all culminates in the Friday Night Lights movie is some of the best football filmed action I've ever seen on screen. I mean it is one it is it is at least in my top 3 for filmed football games. I absolutely loved it, man. I was just on the edge of my seat the whole time. And so I love that he was involved as well in producing this and bringing it over because the first episode almost plays like the exact same thing as the movie, only you're learning different names for different characters and a couple of the roles are changed. Um, But it's generally the same thing. One of the other things I really like about the show, and I know we won't go on forever, but it's that the 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 show revolves around each week and i think it's great for a tv series because it can hone in on these these, there's these benchmarks throughout the series right and that's every game so you always have okay we we, the game number one okay now this next little piece next little couple episodes of the show are dealing with week two of the season or week three of the season week four of the season now i don't know if The show goes on and deals with off-season stuff. I have no idea, but so far for me, I like that it deals with kind of weeks of the football season at a time, and uh, you kind of get to go through that. A lot of the episodes even will have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, leading up to a Friday night game, and I I think that's really cool. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, I'm glad you're watching it, and I'm glad to be on the journey with you, and look forward to breaking down more of this as uh, as the series goes on. Their eyes full
0: hearts and lose. lose with that being said let's transition now from a high school football movie to another movie about football no um this movie has to do with macho things and hitting things just like a football game right patrick yeah
1: i guess if you want to stretch it that far you can
0: <laughs> okay well there's two teams fighting and only one can win so that's how it goes. Uh, okay. <laughs> the movie we're talking about today, as we mentioned, is Pacific Rim. Listeners, this one is awesome, and we are going to spoil <laughs> the heck out of it. So if you haven't seen it, I urge you to go see it. It, it will be a lot of fun. Watch it on the biggest TV that you can find, uh, and fire it up, and just enjoy the ride. <laughs> Patrick. Yes, sir. How many times have you seen this movie? Uh Two and a half. <laughs> Two and a half. Okay. <laughs> Tell me about your your experiences then. Tell me what you thought, at least, it, was it any different for you? And what was your, what, what were you thinking when you, you heard about this film? So what was your expectations? And then and then how has it evolved for you since you've seen it?
1: When I saw the previews, I never got to see it in theaters. It didn't interest me enough because I felt like it was a rehash of an old movie called Robot Jocks, which I thought was great at the time, but it's very, uh very much a cheesy film about guys in these little mechs fighting each other for competitive reasons. And one night, uh, a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, I can't remember, it popped up in my free uh, Amazon Prime queue, and I hadn't seen it. Um, And so I popped it in and kind of went through it and said, okay, that that was kind of cool. Kind of like Armageddon with robots. And Rock and roll action, yeah, that's kind of fun. And uh, it's got Idris Elba, so you can't really go wrong with that. And so for me, it was kind of a fun movie. And uh, and then you mentioned covering it on the podcast, I believe because when we were planning this, it came out, uh, we were trying to figure out something to cover the week that Transformers was coming out and we didn't really wanna cover that one. So you were like, well, what about another movie about giant robots fighting things? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, let's do that. And then, so I popped it in again and as I went through it in preparation for the podcast, things really started to connect and I really enjoyed myself. I, I thought it was still uh, Armageddon with robots, <laughs> that same kind of tone, that same kind of let's not take ourselves way too seriously, but let's be kind of rock and roll heavy a little bit. Let's, let's, get, let's get you know, loud and crazy. And it was definitely, you know, words like macho and testosterone really kind of were keywords in, in my uh, reactions to this. But after watching it, I began to, to really enjoy it more. And I think that subsequent viewings of it have gotten me more, uh, more intrigued with it and actually looking forward to the sequel coming out next year. But, um, it's, it's grown on me. It started out, I think, as a three, and I think it's bumped itself up to like a three and a half. Um, maybe a four. Maybe after this conversation tonight, it might get to a four. But I, but I, I walked away from this last viewing, really having a good time with it. I had, I just, there were so many things about it that I can't wait to talk about, that really pulled me into it and got me smiling.
0: Well, I am super glad to hear that. Um, I would have been crushed had you not loved this movie. Uh, it is a Guilty pleasure among guilty pleasures for me, uh, you know, so cheesy. I say that because some would call this over the top cheese and I I kind of understand where they're coming from, but it's definitely not that kind of film for me. I've always just thought it was so entertaining. Um, so optimistic and I love that it's not afraid to be silly. Um, it has some great story beats that are, that are truly emotionally powerful and moving and inspiring, and yet uh, we have plenty about this film that is just not taking itself seriously at all. It is a complete joke and and making fun of it. So I'm an anime fan as well, and this is literally like a live-action anime. This is Guillermo del Toro's version of that. He loves anime. He loved mechs. He wanted to film this in a way that could capture the enormity of what a mech would be. And I think he did a phenomenal job. And so to that end, the mechs, the Jaegers, I kind of want to start there before we get too deep. And I want to know, do you have a favorite Jaeger?
1: (laughs) It was, it was a tough choice, but in the end I, I picked Crimson Typhoon. Okay. and, And I think from, there was like there's a cool factor associated with this with this Jaeger the triple arm powered by three individuals instead of just the original the, the normal two um but even when it was in its bat you know in, in in battle it just looked so cool the way it fought and I was like yeah if i were if i were gonna pick a Jaeger I would clone two of myself and take on uh piloting the crimson typhoon that was probably my favorite. I love what about that you I
0: love that you would like put more than one of yourself in there. That's Well,
1: that's, yeah, I that's... can't pilot myself. My nose would bleed. My eye would turn weird. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's Duh. pretty funny. Um <laughs> I am a big fan of all of them to be honest. I really like that one as well for the unique. Boo. You got a big one. Oh, I am. I am. But ultimately, it's the repaired version of Gypsy Danger that okay. I come down to. And I got to tell you it's for one reason. And one reason only, and that is the chain sword. The chain sword, yes. I love the idea of these mechs with swords. You know, they're huge, they're gigantic, they're really bulky, and they don't move very well. To be honest, you know, they're 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 so hard to operate and, and maneuver that if you lo- if you fall over, it's all but over for you. So, the fact that one would have this melee sword just to me it makes sense it's very anime goes back to that um so i i I can appreciate the ones that have you know when they when they're using plasma blasts or missiles and all of those all of them are awesome when they do that i mean even the russian one the it's i mean when the way it like uses kind of hydraulic crunching fists to like pound stuff i mean they just the designs are just oh they're so cool man yeah so cool well and i think
1: that seeing the different gens you know gen one gen two gen three i, I want to say were there was there a gen from one through four that was represented with those final four jaegers i
0: think yeah you, i think they're gen four
1: no no not all of them no there's a there's a generation one which is what the russians
0: piloted oh yeah yeah, yeah. crimson and typhoon then, is a four
1: oh, say, so crimson typhoon's a four uh gypsy is a three right
0: i believe so but yes, yeah don't hold me the, to it
1: and then yeah, so it's a one, a three, and then two fours because the um, the other one that had the nuclear uh, the 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 bomb strapped to it was a was a four as well, a generation four. Anyway, I thought it was just really cool to see the evolution of those standing next to each other and what kind of things they adapted to each one. Like the first one, Gen One, was just this pounding machine. Even uh, it was even said that. It is a, you know, it just, you know, make no mistake, Mr. Striker this is a, you know, this is a powerful machine, you know. And then you've got, you know, a, as the generations advance, you see that technology get adapted to those Jaegers and just seeing how they've, how they've progressed. Um, but I love the fact that there's a sword as part of this, this Gen, uh, this Gen 2
0: uh, Jaeger. Well, I feel like they intentionally held that back because it, it really is. Like the most epic, and I was going to ask, I'm giving away my answer, but my answer would, I'm going to ask you what your favorite kill was, but that, that was my favorite kill as well is the moment when, um, they just, they pull that chain sword out at the end and they just plant themselves and stick it in the neck of the kaiju and it comes, it's as it's going by and just slice it, just right down the whole center part of its body and just <laughs> cut it in half, man. And I just, I dude, I, I'm fist pumping. I am excited. I am just all there right there in that moment. I, yep. my regret film this is one of the few films that I will tell you. I truly do regret not seeing this in a theater. Um, I'm, I'm just so, so sad because I cannot imagine how amazing an IMAX screening of this would be. Oh gosh. And I am praying um, when we did our, we did a feel and film movie night and I had four or five people join me and we watched Pacific Rim together. So when I was doing my rewatch, it was awesome. And we were discussing it then how we're crossing our fingers that we get a Pacific Rim, Pacific Rim two double feature coming oh, back yeah. to the theater. Cause they've been doing that a lot for movies. And I think this would be a, a perfect one for that. And I will be first in line. I, I tell you to see that, to see these two on the big screen. Oh. Mm-hmm. Did you have a did you have a favorite kill or was that yours? <laughs> well,
1: that was mine, but in relation to Crimson Typhoon, I really, and this is I think why Crimson Typhoon became my favorite, when when they brought him I guess it's a him, um <laughs> it when they brought it out to fight the kaiju, there's this moment where it flips over and like almost stands on its head and then takes the momentum as it flips backwards and throws the kaiju towards, um, I think, towards Gypsy. No, Ooh. not towards Gypsy, towards, um, towards the, uh, what's the, uh, I can't remember the fourth Mechs or the fourth Jaeger's name. Anyway, it's the other Gen 4. That move right there, the, the way in which, you know, you're just trying to imagine this incredibly heavy thing Flipping over and doing like a wrestling move, like a wrestling ninja move by throwing this kaiju with all that momentum. Mm -hmm. I thought that was phenomenal. It didn't kill him, but that was the moment that I really thought Crimson Typhoon is going to be the, would be the Jaeger that I would, I would fight, especially with, I mean, come on, you've got the, the thundercloud formation for the win. Come on. That's awesome.
0: It's so cool, man. Oh my gosh. Well, there's also Striker and Striker is a Mark five. That's the, uh, That's that's what it is. Okay. That's um Herc and uh his son Ch- right. Chuck that's the yeah
1: that's a mark five you said yeah, that's
0: a mark five. Crimson typhoon okay. is a mark four, right Gypsy danger is a mark three um and then Cherno Alpha, I believe that's the Russian mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. is a mark one
1: so we so we see four of the fives so we don't see a mark two necessarily.
0: Yeah, I'm looking okay. I don't I'm at the, the list of Mark Twos and and none of them show up in the film. Okay. At okay. least not as main main uh main ones. They're
1: part of that interesting history that we don't really know a lot about, you know. But it's kinda of talked to a little bit suddenly here and there.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, staying with this whole action idea. The, the film is this is an action film through and through. I mean it, it does come down and there aren't it's not just action piece to action piece to action piece. There's plenty of stuff in between it, um, that leads us up to the big mech battles, which I appreciate because I think that makes them that much better and more interesting. If we just had a movie where it was nothing but them, the, the, um, Jaegers fighting the Kaiju, it would get boring and it wouldn't be as exciting, but as it is, the action sequences really stand out because there's not very many of them. Right. Well, Del Toro really was going for this overscaled action. And like I was saying earlier, he wanted it to be bigger and better than the Japanese mecha anime that expired it, inspired it. And so that was kind of the scale he was going for. And I got to tell you, this is some neat stuff from the special features that I found on this. He actually had the set built with little toy robots, toy kaiju, toy buildings, like toy everything, and then he basically just played with his toys. That is how he devised the action sequences (laughs) for the film. And and doesn't it feel like it? Especially the Battle of Hong Kong, right? The Battle of Hong Kong is incredible. And the way in which that action sequence plays out, you know, there's parts of that that absolutely remind me of what I would do with my toys, where, you know, the Jaeger grabs uh, a handful of shipping crates <laughs> and uses mm-hmm. them as brass knuckles, right. um, things like that. I really felt that it, that it captured that well.
1: I think it did too. And when you talked about this being a guilty pleasure and trying to justify it, I, I get that because I think by default, when we talk about film, we take the position that it either has to be something that makes us think something that's heartfelt And then there's everything else. And so by default, maybe action movies that don't have a lot of depth, that they are pretty straightforward, somehow get kind of tossed into the popcorn fun, which is very much true. But I think that we get, I think we we do it a disservice by sort of devaluing it unintentionally by saying something like that. What I thought was really fantastic about this film was the refreshing take on a lot of stuff. When I think about the story as a whole, it definitely feels like a kid's dream come true. Like I'm gonna make a movie about robots fighting sea monsters. Well, that's a great, yeah, that's a fantastic concept. One that's probably been in most most little boys' heads. I mean, my my son does that with his, you know, toy cars and whatnot, and just making the you know noises like that. But when you can. Add intrigue to it by creating miniature backstories about the characters that you're gonna, you know, meet along the way. It becomes more than just a series of action sequences that you dream about as a little kid. It becomes something that's entertaining and it gives it a lot more value. But I thought for the most part, all of Del Toro's scientific elements, the way in which he approached the film, the, the use of the Jaegers, the look and feel. Of the Kaiju, the the idea of the drift, all those things worked because they felt somewhat original. They felt like, as a whole, they felt like a refreshing sci-fi action take. It didn't feel like tropes to me. I mean, and and it, it could have been, but it didn't feel like that. Even the names of the, uh, even the names of the Jaegers, Crimson Typhoon. What a fantastic Dude, name for so that, you know? Cool. I mean, Gypsy Danger. These are, I mean, these sound like sound like secret agent names, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, I think uh, we talked about, we, we briefly talked about this last week on the Fields of Dreams episode that Del Toro was all in with this idea, and I don't think he, I mean he didn't half heartedly do anything in this, and so I think that might be a criticism, but I think it's a strength the fact that he was like, if we're gonna go, we're gonna go. And the fact that he made it bigger and better, I think, was a strength to him. I don't think it was overblown. I thought it was, I thought it was perfect for what it tried to be.
0: Yeah, me too. A couple, a couple other things that he did to highlight that dedication to really making it have that feel. One thing I learned is they actually used as much practical effect as they could in the city sequences, like in the Battle of Hong Kong. And so all the cars in the city were built with hydraulics. So when the kaiju was walking across the screen or walking down in the city, every time the kaiju would step, the hydraulics would bounce the cars. Um, And so it would show the cars like going up and down. None of that was green screened. Those were actual practical effects. And so despite the fact that there's so much green screen in this, obviously the kaiju and obviously (laughs) the um, Jaegers has only one man has a Jaeger. And that would be Jeff Bezos of Amazon, um, <laughs> he's the only one with a robot, folks. Um, yeah, it's 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 just so cool, and I I also loved I love that the kaiju were designed very. They feel like they came out of the deep to me. A lot of them have like shark-like qualities or whale-like qualities about them. I don't think that makes it interesting. Um, with regards to how hard it was to film this, we see how violent the movements are in the Jaegers. And I love, I love that about it. I love that it really sells how hard it is to operate this gigantic towering machine. I mean, this thing is walking across the ocean, and it's only up to like its waist. So it's huge, and it takes two people to pilot it. And so the way that they filmed this is the actual actors had to be in this simulator that was – shaking them forward and backward. And it would actually violently throw them forward and to and fro when they would throw punches, when they were filming these scenes and the actors all called it the most grueling and painful thing that they'd ever done in their entire life. <laughs> they said, because of the way they were strapped into this mechanism that would throw them around, they could only do it in like 30 minute increments because it was so incredibly taxing on their bodies. And I just like, I was like, man, I love knowing that that much dedication went into Mm. filming something as simple as watching the Jaeger throw a punch because on screen it's, it's a matter of seconds that we see that, but that plays into something that I think is overlooked in this film by its, its haters. And I got no other word for it because if you don't like this, you're just a hater. Um, is it's world building Patrick. Mm -hmm. We get this really cool prologue. I don't know if you loved it. I loved it. And it I, was a
1: bit, I think the, I think the, I think the vocal, the, the, uh-huh. the, I don't know if it was an accent or something, but I thought I was hearing like a, a Garrett Hedlund mixed in with a Thomas Jane lovechild voice or whatever, where it's like this raspy <laughs> and watching, again, watching it on a, on a repeat viewing it got better. Like I focused less on, this is a weird voice that I'm hearing and more on the actual world building itself. So it became very, very informative to me.
0: Good. Well, I, I agree. And I'm not, I'm not praising the voiceover myself. Um, I'm more praising the, the information that we're getting in, in the prologue. Mm -hmm. And I, and I feel like it does a great job of, it sets the past by kind of referencing history and conversations. And this continues throughout right so we, we get a little taste of that in the prologue and then all throughout the film we we don't always see on screen what has happened we know that this war has been going on I mean we're at the point now where the world has given up they're like they're done they feel defeated and there's a great scene where Herc just casually mentions that he's only known one other pilot or one pilot other than Rally to bring a Jaeger back solo He's talking to his son, right? And he's like, there's only one other guy I know that has ever done that. You need to respect it. And for me, not giving me those specifics, that subtlety, I feel like goes a long way. Because I'll mm-hmm. tell you, my main, my brain immediately is going, I want to know the story of the other Jaeger that got like brought back solo. Like, There's clearly a history to this war mm-hmm. and to this world that it feels – it's almost – don't laugh me off the mic, listeners. It's almost like a Tolkien-esque type of thing, where he's giving you bits and pieces of this lore that exists. He's not telling you any details, but it's mm-hmm. like it's almost like I know it's in Guillermo del Toro's head what actually has all taken place. All these old Jaegers that get referenced and mentioned, I feel like he probably knows their stories, and and it makes mm-hmm. me want more. Did you get that sense? I did. And the the effect of
1: it became more of the, I'm now being thrown into the middle of this chaos, which I think is what del Toro wanted us to feel. I don't think he wanted us to gradually lead up to a war. I think he wanted us to feel like what Jaeger pilots feel like. Woken up in the middle of the night because a kaiju is attacking, let's get ready to go. I mean, it's never anything subtle. And I think as an audience, that's what he wanted us to feel. He wanted us to feel like we were just thrown right into the fight. And thrown right into the danger because that's what his characters were feeling. I have no doubt that he had some of these ideas up in his head as far as like, okay, well we're gonna we're gonna create this backstory so that we can get to this other place. I mean, think about think about the way in which uh, Stacker introduces the other three sets of of Jaeger pilots. You know, he gives each one of them a backstory. He talks about the Russians and how they held the I can't remember which wall for six years and he goes six years, you know, and Mm -hmm. then he talks about, of course, my favorite, uh, my favorite guys. Um, and he talks about how they, he mentions the, he mentions the thundercloud formation at some point, which we actually get to see. Um, but it would have been just as effective if we hadn't gotten to see it. And so he uses these small moments to fill in gaps that otherwise, I mean, we wouldn't, we don't have to know all that, but it just makes the characters that much more intriguing And so when he throws little tidbits of information about the history of this world, it enhances our viewing because we get more invested in that world. We're not just being told a story. We're now part of the story to an extent.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is is so true, so true. And I love it. I love being thrown into that mix without too much context and just having to figure it out as we go. Um, I think that that's a great method of storytelling for this particular type of film. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's a great, be a great way to storytell necessarily in like a drama or, um, other, other genres, but it, it really works for me here. Um, it, I, I, I can't get over that scale and, and the idea of, of that war and just how enormous it is. The fact that these these Jaegers are fighting these kaiju and I mean their their room for error, Patrick, is so small. When you watch mm-hmm. these battles, they miss one punch and get an arm taken off by a kaiju and it's 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 game over, man. Right. You know, like to me, the movie really sells that. It sells why there's so much pressure on these pilots, why they're so elite. And I understand like some viewers it, it may be harder to understand to get that connection. It's not for me. Um, but like, cause you don't see them, you see them, you just see them strapped into the, the center of this or the head of this, this Jaeger. And you don't really think about it that much, mm-hmm. but you got to realize that how, how hard it is to do this and how, right. how deadly those Kaiju, um, were.
1: Yeah. I think the battle of Tokyo, the Tokyo battle was really Hong Kong, Hong Kong. Sorry, my bad. That's okay. Um, it, it was a. A defining moment for me as a as a spectator not just because we got to see most of the battles like in 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 length you know up till then we just seen like quote, video footage or the opening battle with you know with 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 rally and yancey but the this particular battle we get to see the variety of jaegers and we got to see that scale we got to see how big we were introduced to how big these Jaegers were in the, you know, in a couple of scenes before when, um, when Raleigh and, and, and Mako were doing kind of a test run with Gypsy. Mm-hmm. You know, so we see, we see that, we see that Jaeger in relation to the people around it. And when you couple that with the, with the battle a couple of scenes later, you really get to see how big these, these Kaiju are. Oh, and, so enormous. and, and why such a giant <laughs> robot was needed? I particularly love the, I guess you could call it choreography, mm-hmm. the way in which you, the the filmmakers crafted these these choreographed sequences and had to intentionally slow them down because you're talking about swinging, a you know a, this insanely heavy arm to try to try to hit this this monster. I can't even imagine. How that feels to a pilot, to a Jaeger pilot, uh, combined with that and the and the drift, just how disorienting that's got to feel. You know, where because I'm used to if I'm going to punch or throw a throw a hook, I'm going to do it very quickly. Well, do they have to throw it very slowly? Do they feel the weight of those arms? How does that work? All these things that just kind of got me thinking about it, and I would love to believe that Del Toro's kind of got all that written down in some giant appendix that says, you know, the specs of how. You know, of Jaeger training and all that stuff.
0: Oh, I would totally buy that, man. This is a movie that I would dive into the world of, and I, and I want to. I want to look up and find out more about it. Um, I want a Jaeger I want the full scale model that they have. It's pretty expensive. I have a buddy, one of our podcast uh, guest hosts, Blaine Grimes, who who got himself that most expensive uh, Jaeger replica, and it is it is flipping awesome. <laughs> I mean, it is. I've seen a picture of it. I, I'm going to see it as how soon. And I can't wait because oh man, I want that thing standing up there above all my little pop figures, just lording over them. But <laughs> but you're right when you're when you were talking about the 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 act of throwing a punch and how much power is in this Jaeger it reminded me of a quote actually rally says um he says there are, there are things you can't fight he said acts of god you see a hurricane coming you have to get out of the way but when you're in a Jaeger suddenly you can fight the hurricane you can win and, and like that I'm getting chills just reading it like it sells me on how bad to the bone these things are <laughs> mm-hmm. um so yeah we obviously love the Eggers and we could just sit here and gush about them forever. One of the, the interesting concepts right in this there's, there's science fiction aspect because of robots, but that's really kind of more fantasy where the movie hits its sci-fi mark. For me is with this idea of the drift Patrick. So the drift is this idea that two people can connect Neurally, in order to pilot this Jaeger. In sequence, one one is controlling half, and the other is controlling another half. Cool or ridiculous? I guess I'll put it to you that way.
1: Well, let me tell you, I
0: loved the concept of the Drift.
1: <laughs> the idea of sharing a brain in order to become stronger get information and strengthen two people is it's fascinating, man. I mean, I think it's probably one of, if not the coolest sci-fi concept I've ever seen executed in a story. And again, by the, by the, the prologue helps set that up. I mean, it gives you that information on what it is and they use that as a plot point for later on about drifting with the kaiju and how if that hadn't been set up early on, that whole thing about connecting your brain to a kaiju would have seemed pretty ridiculous. And I think in the world of Pacific Rim, we don't question how that technology came to be. We don't we don't question the drift. We're just loving the fact that it exists because of what it has the power to do. But what we also see is the consequences of that. In particular, when, when Raleigh talks to, and shortly after the uh the test run with him and Mako after her after she basically breaks down after she chases the rabbit um and he says it's my fault uh and I'm I'm not quoting directly but he said but you're getting more than what you bargained for essentially you're not just getting my memories you're getting my brother's too he was taken for me while we were still connected and that moment um really put me in a place of saying I can't even imagine how it would feel to be mentally connected to someone, let alone have that thing severed immediately and always have those, those, those memories intact. Mm-hmm. Um, that takes a huge amount of vulnerability as a person. And I love the fact that they build that up when he's trying to find his, himself a co-pilot. It's not just about who can, who can become drift compatible, but really who do you trust at this point? Man, but the drift itself is just a fantastic scientific concept.
0: I wholeheartedly agree. And as a sci-fi geek, I love it as well. Um, I, I understand. I've heard people. This is, this is where a lot of people lose the movie in my estimation and from, from listening and having conversations. If you don't buy the drift, it's hard to, to accept the rest of the story. For people, and I, I buy a hook line and hook line and sinker. I think it's amazing. I think it's just a neat visual and narrative way to define those special bonds and relationships that people can have with each other, um, whether it's best friends or lovers or a father and a son. And I and I, I really love the diverse way in which they pair people up. We have the Absolutely. twins. We have the or the, mm-hmm. the trio. Right we have a father son we had brothers um we had you know Idris Elba who is drift compatible with basically everybody because he's the man um, is, and and that's what you <laughs> get that sense you get the sense that like he is he is the epitome of like adaptable and so there's no question in my mind at the end of the film when um Chuck says, like, who's going to, who's going to be my pilot? You know? And it, and it said, and he says, it's him. I don't question for a second that he would be compatible. I think Chuck says, well, how do we, how do we know if we're, we're drift? And he's like, he's like, you're your daddy's son. We'll drift just fine. And I just, I, (laughs) you know, stuff like that. And again, with the world building, that one line, that one sentence tells me that stacker and Herc have a history. Like Mm -hmm. they've drifted before together. I want to know what happened. Like, Oh gosh, I want to go find that out. So I think the concept of the drift is awesome. I think the way in which it's portrayed is really cool and unique. I think it's a good balance between headiness and also comical relief, which we'll get to. Um, and I think because of that, that lighthearted way in which they handle it is what helps make this film so unique. Tonally speaking. I agree.
1: This, this film I think is, is best View, well I say best viewed I think the, the, one of the strengths of the film is the use of pairs I mean we begin with this idea of like the fruit the, I'm no, kidding not I'm kidding sorry I'm kidding <laughs> it could be but I didn't see any in this one but the idea of, of pairing up of 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 partners of some kind so you have these fa- the father son relationship the husband and wife I believe the Russians were I think they were husband and wife I think they were together um you have uh, you know stacker who of course is compa- <laughs> he is compatible with anybody you know he's just he's awesome um, but even outside of the Jaeger environment you have you have the the two scientists you have you know dr. Newton uh, Geisler I think and 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 Gottlieb Herman Gottlieb you know these two guys that could be throwaway characters and at the same time by the end of the film, they become as a pair, just as important to the
0: plot. You know? So well, I'm glad you brought them up because I want to talk about that. I want to talk about those scientists because that's the comical relief. I want to talk about the cast as well in general, because there's so much diversity to this and to these pairings. Let's start with those scientists though. These guys are played by Charlie Day and Bern Gorman. Now I know I've seen Burn Gorman somewhere. I don't know in what I'm not familiar with Charlie Day from his TV, um, acting. I know many people are, are, I think it's, I don't, yeah, I don't want to guess, but I think it's like sunny on this side of Philadelphia or whatever. It's always sunny
1: in Philadelphia.
0: Okay. That was close. So I think he's a star in that show. People love him. I think this pairing is fantastic. Again, it's over the top, but it's anime. It is based on anime. And if you've ever seen an anime, this is how anime characters act. They act like these scientists. Everything is every emotion and every action is exaggerated, right? And and just overblown. And these two guys give me so much in the realm of a, a an actual meaningful relationship because they start off and it and it feels like they're just gonna be there to be this these kooky characters. You feel like one of them is almost like Dexter and just gonna be like, yell, you know, get out of my laboratory, you know. But right, right. <laughs> they don't, they, they end up having an actual meaningful connection to each other. And so it makes it so much more than just a comedy stick because they're, they're at the end, you know, when, when he comes up in, and, and um, I don't remember the character's names, so it's going to be me who fails at this, but when Bern Gorman's character comes up to Charlie days there and, and offers, he says, well, by, by jove. Good fellow, let's do this thing, right? And they have <laughs> yeah. this awkwardest, awkward, awkward moment.
1: Mm-hmm. It's funny, yes.
0: But you have to remember, this could kill them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it is truly a sacrificial moment where he is putting his faith in his co- co- cohort, who he had for so long disagreed with and not believed in. He's giving his, putting his life on the line, and you know, showing him this, this act of friendship and this act of trust that is really powerful for me. And I, I I just get so much out of these guys Mm -hmm. that is more than I think what you would see on the surface level if you're not really paying attention.
1: Yeah. Lately I've been really observing the word that just comes to mind is this idea of levity Mm, and I mean, it's just, it's coming up in my head a lot in terms of, having levity at work in the midst of some of the chaos of projects and deadlines and stuff. And with my family being able to have levity and be able to laugh at myself. And when you, when you talk about Pacific Rim not taking itself seriously, that's not a detriment. It's the ability to balance the balance, the tone of the film to where it keeps you engaged, keeps you entertained, but keeps you caring about the characters. I mean, even from the beginning uh rally in his narration talks about the fact that the jaeger pilots became rock stars and you see clips of people holding action figures and basically looking at this world of jaegers fighting uh kaiju as almost like a sporting event almost like a you know this is this is just the world we live in i mean even ron perlman's character hannibal is you know he he that's what it's part of his job. His routine as a black market kaiju uh, parts seller. I mean, he he anxiously awaits a kaiju to fall so he can go in and basically harvest everything that he can. I mean, this is this is the normal world that people live in, and people have adapted to that. It's just a normal thing to see giant robots fighting giant monsters, and occasionally people get killed, and walls come down, and you know cities collide. Or you know they they. Get destroyed. So, to me, looking at this and thinking, how can you just sit there and watch this? Well, because the two things. One, that's the world they live in, that's the world that Del Toro set up. But it's part of the levity, I believe, in that you have to be able to, to an extent, laugh at yourself. Otherwise, this doesn't become an entertaining movie. It becomes a very much a sad movie about the state of the world. And here's what we've been subjected to. You know, we are now just a world full of. Fighting and the world is being, you know, is destroying itself. And what it's, what it actually is because of that balance is now a world of people trying to take care of the world itself. You know, it's not just a country trying to save the world, it's the world trying to save the world. And so instead of getting despair and loss, we get hope in the midst of this, in the midst of all this chaos, which is a strong theme in this film. Um, And it's well earned.
0: Yeah, man, I I think it really is, too. And so the diversity of this cast, I think, is a huge strength as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Not only do we have those two characters personality wise that are that are unique, but just from an ethnicity basis. I mean, gosh, we have Jaegers from all over the world. Mm -hmm. Um, We have. Clearly we, what do we have? We have Australia as a part of this. We have the, the Asia. Russians, Asia, Asia. Um, we have Marshall Pentecost, uh, who's an African American. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got, we've just got so much representation, um, in this. And it's, it's interesting because in a lot of films that happens and some people can roll their eyes a little bit and go, okay, we're trying to force this it never feels forced in this film. It feels mm-hmm. natural. And you know why it feels natural is because del Toro Made it a point. He said in one of the special features I watched that he never wanted this to feel like a country was fighting against the kaiju. He needed it to feel like the world was truly fighting back. So, in comparison to, say, something like an Armageddon, it's the good old USA that's going to save the world, right? We're going right. to save the day for everyone. That's not what this is. This is the best of the best and what you got left coming together in the entire world to work together to save it. And I, I freaking love that about it. I think it's awesome.
1: I do too. I think that it's even reinforced in the accents. I, I, I will never be able to say Jaeger without hearing Idris Elba saying Jaeger, you know, or Mr. Beckett, you'll hear to take down all the cause with you. You know, that's my Australian actually, but the, the thickness of the accents and the fact that they were so intentionally placed reinforce that idea of this global protection and the fact that we as a world are in this together. Um, And at the same time in today's climate of trying to be more diverse in the world of needing more female directors and more diverse cast, this didn't feel like it was trying to do that. It felt like this was just the natural, um, the the natural next step Mm -hmm. in creating a movie about how a world saves itself. Well, Let's not just put Americans in or Asians in or Germans in. It has to be about the world. And so it all felt completely natural. None of it felt distracting. And in fact, it was – the more I watched it, the more I enjoyed the diverse accents that I was hearing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Um, and you know, if we're going to talk about cast specifically – by the way, it's Charlie Hunnam. It's not uh, Garrett Hedlund you mentioned briefly earlier. And I get them confused. No,
1: no, no! I was saying, but he sounds like oh, a, oh, a love child of okay. Garrett
0: Hedlund and Tom Jane. That's what okay, I'm I am saying. Okay, gotcha. I
1: was like, when I see his when I see his face, I am like, hey, that's that's Tom Jane. And then when he talks, I am like, that's Garrett Hedlund. So it's like if they had a baby, that would be it.
0: Now that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, I thought you were confusing Hunnam and Hedlund, which I do no, no. all the time. So no, no. <laughs> I was like, well, that's a normal normal thing to do. Um, no. <laughs> but okay, if there is a star of the movie, it's Idris Elba because when Idris Elba is in a movie, Idris Elba stars period you Elba is a <laughs> icon of charisma and mm-hmm. strength and perfection um if I have a man crush to be honest I think it's this is this would be the guy at this point yeah. um, he's got
1: my vote for the next bond personally dude but...
0: oh I really do i really want him to be bond so badly too so unique and would be so perfect but he he is just he has something he has the it factor i say charisma that's what it is this movie shines with him. I mean, De Toro and, and the writers give him so many incredible lines. Um, he, I, I just, I can go through them in my head and, and I love, and, and, and I can't, like you said, the accents, I can't say them like he says them, but it's the way in which he delivers them. When he says yeah. vengeance is like an open wound, right? Like that, when he's talking about that concept of mm-hmm. vengeance being an open wound, it's so, so strong. He says, do not let my calm demeanor fool you. Mm -hmm. and then i think my favorite one
1: i think i know which one you're gonna talk about (laughs) you gotta try it with english accent you can do it come on
0: my favorite (laughs) one is when he's talking to Raleigh, and Raleigh grabs him and he just turns around he says one don't ever touch me again two don't you ever touch me again (laughs) he says you have no idea who the heck i am or where i've come from and I'm not about to tell you my whole life story. All I need to, to be to you and everybody else in this dump is a fixed point. The last man standing. I do not need your sympathy or your admiration. All I need is your compliance and your fighting skills. And if I can't get that, then you can go back to the wall I found you crawling on. Do I make myself clear? And Raleigh just like kind of in shock, right? Just kind of nods to him. And this mm-hmm. is the best part. And Stacker leans to him, points to his ear. And Raleigh's like, yes, sir. And he's just, good. And I just, to me, like there are leadership speeches and there are moments in film where these, these things happen, right? These are, these are build up moments. We're going up to this point of, of, of dialogue where we know something's going to happen. This is, this scene right here to me is every bit as good as the speech scene where he talks yeah. about canceling the apocalypse mm-hmm. because this tells me everything I need to know. And it's also got that little tidbit of world building where he talks about, I don't have to tell you where I've come from. So we learn a little bit. We, we, we start to hear more about where, how, you know, how this guy's been in the, in the mix. He's very similar to Viper in Top Gun because this scene reminds me kind of, of the scene with Viper and Maverick when Maverick goes to his house at the end of the film and Viper gives him the straight up. He's like, listen, you got two options, (laughs) you know, you can quit or you, you don't. You know, like he—he's no—he's not bsing, and that's what Stacker does here, and it's all Elba, man. Mm It's—it's. I just can't imagine somebody else delivering this in that in the same way.
1: Watching this and watching him in it, and knowing just the other roles that I've seen him in, I, I love going back to shows like The Office where he made a few guest appearances as a as comic relief, but he was still that same guy. Like he was still the authoritative. I mean, not nearly as. In the, in the comedic realm, he had to obviously alter it a little bit, but he's still that guy. And there's a, probably a reason why he's asked to do those roles is because he just naturally um, just uh, pulls that out. He naturally makes those kinds of performances happen. And to me, I think that moment that you mentioned of him that started with, you know, don't you ever touch me again, don't you ever touch me again, you know, that – was so much better than the speech. The speech to me felt like ID4. It also
0: you know? felt cut off. I feel like it. Sh- it feels condensed to me. Like it feels mm-hmm. like it should have been longer.
1: It's weird. I almost wish it weren't there because I think you get all of what you need from him and that inspiration. This is a film that doesn't need that inspiration. I mean, we're already there. We don't. We've already had the world. We've already had this this buildup of, yes, we're in a bad place and we already have enough of these moments that I think that's one of my, that's one of my like, you know, demerits for this film is that it didn't need that, that cliche, you know, you can do this speech. I mean, these guys did know that they weren't discouraged. They were like, we're going to do this. I mean, I guess I felt, I mean, I guess it was necessary because that was kind of the story beat, but I don't think it was necessary. I think it, I think it just kind of, it was blah. You know, it didn't inspire me.
0: Well, I agree. I I think that, I mean, I get I get ramped up for the today we are canceling the apocalypse. I, I, I love that line of dialogue. And I, I wish that, mm-hmm. that I want that dialogue to stay. Um, I just don't know that it's it's the best part of this one. Like I said, when, we'll when we have this
1: yeah, yeah. put it at the end of a conversation that he's having with somebody. Exactly.
0: Much like the conversation with Raleigh that we were just talking about, where he really shows himself um, to be in control <laughs> without any question <laughs> at all. So I want to also talk briefly about the music. Um, okay. We've been doing that a lot lately, and I really enjoy that. I've been I've been listening to this score uh, this week. I think it's awesome. The composer's name is Ramin Jawadi, and he actually is the composer of the Game of Thrones and the Westworld scores, which are both phenomenal and two of the best TV scores, and, and particularly their theme songs um, that you will ever hear. So did this one affect you emotionally did it did it work for you in the context of the picture
1: to be honest it was fine it didn't feel distracting or anything I'm not as familiar with his stuff Mm -hmm. I don't I don't watch Game of Thrones or or Westworld yet I'm eventually going to get get part of the Westworld craze but uh, not at this point I'm you know busy watching World of Dance and things like that so (laughs) you've got music that I think I say this only because it didn't. It wasn't something that struck out uh, that stuck out to me. It was serviceable. It was very much uh, complemented the scenes pretty well, but it, nothing really stood out to me. So I'd be interested to see if there was anything that stood out to you, moments with the music that you felt like enhanced the scene or that uh, that got you emotionally.
0: Oh yeah. I mean the main the main the main theme that comes to mind is just the one that always plays when they're the the Jaegers are going out and marching out to battle, just the the dun 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 like that one um that one gets me really hyped. I feel like it fits the the epic scale of what we're seeing. So perfectly well Um, So again I agree I don't think it's like my favorite Score of all time I don't I don't rank it Up there amongst my favorites and the best But I think that Particularly in the moments When we are leading up to a Fight that I think the score Really shines and and does Affect me emotionally some so So I like it good Good. Um, The last thing I wanted to mention Is the ending Uh, And not not the battle ending But like the very 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 ending
1: like the credits, because those are pretty cool. I mean, yeah, I guess I know, those right? Just, so cool. Look at that, that, that! typography was amazing.
0: Nothing will touch the shallows, though. Best credits I've ever seen. <laughs> this
1: is true. This um, is so true.
0: So, in the end, after the pods have popped up, we see Raleigh's pod, and we think he's—he's—we he, don't know if he's alive or not. Mako jumps in the water, swims over to him. She's kind of freaking out. She thinks he's dying, um, and. The way in which this scene is handled, I adore so much, Patrick. They don't kiss. They don't kiss. And it leaves you with the sense that they could end up just being really close friends. We know there's something there between them. There's a connection. I mean, they drifted as well. But even if there is a romance, there probably is. The film doesn't... Feel like it has to explore that it doesn't shoehorn that in it doesn't force it it doesn't say oh you know now we're going to give you this cheap thrill of they're going to make out here in the end for 10 minutes and i appreciated that little moment and that little choice so so much did you have any thought on that yeah i
1: mean it goes back to what we discussed earlier about the strength of the pairs and about the fact that we had well-defined pairings like father son husband wife brothers and when we get to these guys there was no like logical pairing when they got together I mean it was him and her they weren't related but somehow somehow they they drift they were drift compatible we could explore what those are I think the main one is that they both come from tragedy they both had an incredibly tragic loss and maybe that's where they connected but the ambiguity at the end really lent itself to strengthening the idea that they were a couple but not like a romantic, they weren't, they weren't connected romantically. Um, they were connected by something common and it didn't necessarily have to lend itself to a romantic thing. It could logically lead there because when you, I can tell you from my own personal experience, when you experience a trauma, when you experience something, um, pretty, pretty emotionally, uh, daunting or whatever, with somebody else, you're going to have an emotional connection with that person. And I would think drifting does that.
0: Oh gosh, (laughs) I would imagine so.
1: And when you couple that with the person that you're drifting with being a person of the opposite sex, yes, there is that, there's that probably logical leap to go there. But the fact that they left it as ambiguous as it was left you saying the purpose was not for them to get together because they were a perfect couple the purpose of this was to show that their connection extended beyond the drift. It was now a connection of, of experience. It was a connection of past trauma and the romantic side wasn't an important factor. And so I'm glad that they didn't go there because it would have cheapened that moment.
0: Yeah, I, I can, I completely agree. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you saw it that way as well. Because, um, again, it's it's one of those scenes in this film that are just seemingly brief little movie moments that um, they carry so much weight quietly and subtly. And, and I, it's the brilliance of this one for me. Well, Patrick, do you have anything else, uh, Major, you want to talk about before we move on into the connecting point?
1: No, man. I'd love to get into our connecting points.
0: All right. Well, since you would love to get into our connecting points, why don't you go ahead and get up in your connecting point?
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna become drift compatible with my connecting point right oh, now. Oh <laughs> man! Hopefully, I won't chase the rabbit. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, when we talk about this film, with it being so high action and just like lots of just crazy stuff going on, you would think that it would be difficult to find a connecting point. But Del Toro is a great director, and his creativity lends itself to. Having moments that uh, that that I connected with, and one in particular was actually Mako's flashback. Is it, is it Mako or Mako? Mako, right? Sure, let's go with Mako. Okay, yeah, or or Rally, you know, as opposed to Raleigh, as, as the uh, Australian calls him. But her flashback sequence after she and she and Rally connect mentally, um, first of all, that was just an incredible sequence. That whole flashback sequence of her him trying to talk her down and seeing her as a little girl. We get her backstory and why she is the way she she is. It gives weight to her motive, which is about revenge. And that could be very much a trope for sure. But that's okay because in particular, it pays itself off when she uses that Jaeger sword to slice and dice the kaiju, which as you mentioned was awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. But this, this moment works for me because now both she and Riley are approaching that 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 desire or that need or that purpose to fight from a place of tragedy. And because they're connected, it makes them stronger emotionally. It gives them more weight to their connection. And so that flashback sequences, it didn't start with her breaking out. It didn't start. It it didn't start with her messing up. It was actually him. Like he actually lost it for a minute and then it caused her to move forward. So this is the first moment that I think we really see some chinks in his armor you know up, up till then raleigh has been just the the guy he's been the man outside of you know outside of stacker but i think that moment helped to solidify their relationship and their connection beyond just the drift and more into leading into the conversation afterwards when they're just sitting out which i think is a fantastic shot one of my favorite shots when they're sitting in front of uh, gypsy mm-hmm. and you see the massive scale of gypsy compared to them and how he's talking to her about, you know, drifting and how it it was really his fault and how it's anyway, all those those two moments in particular put me in a place where it wasn't just about their motives, but it was really about connecting with them as people and and wanting them to find resolution with their relationship with one another. You know, being able to find strength in each other through the drift and through their outside the drift relationship. And I think those two moments were necessary for them to be able to take up the mantle when the, I guess it was the, um, the electro magnet or whatever that shut down all the, all the digital power.
0: EMP pulls from the Kaiju, EMP. which yeah, is yeah, the awesome. EMP,
1: I thought was great too. I think had they not had that experience and that conversation afterwards, you wouldn't have seen them be able to get into the, uh, their Jaeger and, and do their thing. So that was, that was my connecting point.
0: Well, that's awesome. I love it. And I am, I'm glad that you picked that because that was probably going to be my number two. It seems like this happens a lot where if there's a couple of good scenes, we would, we both end up thinking about both, you know, those two, we pick them both out and then we choose different ones that we connect with. I love that. Um, for me, it has to be the emotional aspect of the ending. Um, for one thing I want to, I want to say before I, I, I go over that is that also with the world building, this whole sequence to me is just so fascinating. You know, as Raleigh ends up falling into, um, into the breach, the brief look that we get at the Kaiju world, you, you want to talk about selling somebody on a sequel? Like I'm <laughs> it's, it's over. I'm done. I am, I am a hundred percent in at that point. Um, it's, it's so cool. So cool to see that. And you just you just want to know what the heck is going on. Where are they coming from? And it's a, it's a strength of the film as well that they don't answer that question, right? It's not just about setting up sequels. It's also about telling a self-contained story. And the story was, we need to stop this action. Not we need to go to the kaiju world and destroy them because we didn't even know that existed. So I love that. Um, and I, I think about that when I think about my ending and that's where I'm tying this in. So for me, my connection comes in those moments at the end where, where we slow down and we get quiet and the realization that someone is going to have to make a sacrifice occurs. Mako understands now what stacker is going to do. And he says, Mako, you can finish this. I'll always be here for you. You can always find me in the drift. And it's so, so powerful at that moment. The way that Mako responds, she says goodbye to him in Japanese. And we don't even know what she's saying. She's whispering it. We hear her say the word sensei. And then she says something in another language. There's no subtitle. If you find out after the fact that she says, sensei, I love you. But then it's not just that after that, we get ramped back up slowly to that, that, that absolute perfection of strength that Idris Elba's character portrays. So he's just said goodbye to the the love of his life. And Herc says, not Herc, Chuck says, what can we do? And he says, we can clear a path for the lady. And I just love all the dialogue here everything that's going on. You have Marshall saying goodbye to Mako. You have Mako saying goodbye back. You have Chuck saying goodbye to his dad. The way that the shot focuses on Herc when he says I'm proud and he's just standing there in the control room, unable to do anything, knowing his son is about to die is a gut punch. Like it, it chokes me up thinking about it. Like there's so much, like you said, Patrick, and this all is built up to because of the relationships and the pairings that we get throughout the film. So Mm -hmm. now all of these pairings being broken apart have different connections. And so it means so much in different ways. And so it's just this group understanding of the sacrifice that's about to happen, emanating all the way into the control room and all the side characters. And it just, it makes me cry. I, I get emotional at this point in the film. And despite the fact that I know we're about to see some awesome, like nuclear bomb go off and we're all, we're about to see my awesome favorite scene with the sword coming up. Like, It's, it's this that like gets me the most because you can't always win without major sacrifice. And I, and I think that it was important for this to happen. Um, I think it was important for us to, as much as I didn't want to lose stacker um, and would have loved to seen him come back in a sequel movies that are willing to kind of go all the way and, and you lose the guy that really matters the most, I think are elevated for me. Uh, because of that. And so, yeah, man, I, I love these goodbyes.
1: Great connecting point, man. And very much, uh, one that, that I would, would pick as well. I, I think when you said sacrifice that's earned makes, uh, maybe you didn't say this specifically, but I got the fact that sacrifice that's earned makes a movie's story that much more compelling. Mm-hmm. You know? And you experience loss with the characters. I think that's a very powerful thing.
0: Yeah. For sure. Well, I guess it's time for us to say goodbye too. But uh, I wanted to make one quick note. For those of you that are into video games, you might not know this, but the Portal video game made by Valve has a computer, evil computer, named GLaDOS. Well, the computer in Pacific Rim is voiced by the same actress that plays the computer in Portal. And in fact, she even uses the famous line from the video game portal at one point in this movie. And the computer says, would you like to try again? Which is a really, really cool nod. And I, I really love that. It was just such a fun Easter egg. And when, when somebody told me about that, I had to rewind and listen to it over and over again. And I just got so, (laughs) so giddy, man. It was so awesome. That
1: is great, man.
0: Yeah. Well, with that being said, Patrick, don't get cocky kid, but tell us where people can find you online. (laughs) Well,
1: if you want to drift with me, or at least talk to me on the web, you can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so you can find me at any of those participating social media places. You can also find out more about me, things that I'm into, at my website, thisispatch.com. Also wanted to let you know that our next episode is one that I am personally excited for. I mean, I think we say this every week, that we're really excited about covering the next episode, because we are. I mean, this we is like, on another like, level. But this is like this is like level 10 times 100, right? This will be the first time ever that Aaron and I will be podcasting on a movie that we will be seeing together. Yes, you heard it right. My buddy is coming to my state. He's coming home, I guess if you will. And uh, then he's going to get on a boat and be cruising for a week. But then he's coming back home. <laughs> And he and I are going to be checking out Baby Driver together and then doing a, you know, a in-room, in-the-same-room podcast about it uh, sometime later that day or night. So I am, you know, the podcast is going to be great, but I'm just really looking forward to watching a movie with you. It's going to be a blast. I think the last time we did this, The Amazing Mm Spider-Man had come out with uh, Andrew Garfield. And it would have been even, I think it would have been even cooler baby driver I'm looking forward to for sure but if it was a week later we would have caught
0: the new spider-man the new spider-man so that would have been perfect that would have been really neat
1: I'll take what I can get and this is going to be something fun.
0: Well, I'm hoping that a kaiju doesn't take out my cruise ship so that we actually get to do this because I am, (laughs) I am equally as excited. And frankly, the movie itself is one of our most anticipated of the year. So it works out well. Um, we're, we're pumped for that. And I just, I, I think it's going to be a fun conversation to be able to kind of do this in person and, and kind of raw without a lot of notes. We're just going to come at it and come out of there and, and go sit down and talk about it. So it's going to be a unique conversation next week and, uh, hope everybody will check that one out.
1: Well, what about you, Aaron? Uh, where can people find you on the webs? Did Did you tell people where people could find you? I uh, did. Did you? I thought I can, you do, just... I can do it. I can do it again, or they can just rewind it. You know, whatever.
0: Hey, rewinding. Re, be kind and rewind. So kind of you, <laughs> you can find me all over the interwebs at Aaron L White A A R O N E L W H I T E on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter. I'm also tweeting from the Feelin Film Twitter account and very active in our Facebook group as well as Patrick. So you can find that link everywhere on our blog post on our show notes on the bottom page of feelinfilm.com, There's a link to the Facebook group. Um, we always are encouraging you to go to that. And there's a good reason because you know, it's growing and it's a lot of fun. So if you like talking movies all day, that's the place to come. We also have FeelinFilm film plus our kind of sister show that we use to talk about all kinds of other stuff. We've got a review of it Comes at Night, the recent indie horror movie, as some would call it. Uh, we have an awesome documentary review of The King of Kong with Patrick and a friend of the show, Francisco Ruiz from Retro Rewind Podcast. We have an anime review of uh, up there and we have some, some uh, Seattle International Film Festival coverage. It's just a, a smorgasbord of content. So we hope that if you're interested at all, you will pop over to Feel and Film Plus, hit the subscribe button on that one as well. Well, Patrick, I think that's it for this episode. I'm jacked. I'm ready to go watch Pacific Rim again. I think that's what I'm going to go do. I don't know <laughs> about you. but I may watch some Friday Night Lights, actually. Hey, oh, just as good. Just as good. <laughs> well, listeners, until next time, stay positive.
1: And keep feeling film.